You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Michael Watkins, who is the founder of Genesis, which is a consulting and advisory firm, and also a professor at IMD, the business school in Lausanne, although you're not in Lausanne at the moment, and also the author of a whole bunch of books around leadership and leadership development, including this one right here, which I have a digital copy, The First 90 Days, right? Classic. Also, Your Next Move, Mastering Your Next Move, and this one right here from back in the day, co-authored with Max Bazerman, called Predictable Surprises, The Disasters You Should Have Seen Coming and How to Prevent Them, which is I think, acquired a new life in the last year and a half for for good reason. So, Michael, first of all, welcome. Maybe we could lead off by going back to how you wound up settling into a discipline which I guess didn't really have a name until you came along, which is like the transition strategy or... Onboarding, some combination of those things. Yeah, leadership transitions for sure. Yeah, and you mentioned in one of your books that when you came up with this idea of drilling into transitions when you were at Harvard, that your colleagues said, hey, this is kind of a risky move, presumably because it was something that hadn't yet been defined as as a discipline. And I guess you were early enough in your career that you were trying to establish credibility. And, and this was something which was a little risky. Could you talk about that, for instance? Like, first of all, you know, how'd you decide on that? And second of all, why wasn't there a discipline around this super important thing? So I guess I'd just start by saying, I'd love to tell you that my career was this brilliantly planned sequence of moves, you know, that led inexorably to success, Greg. But the reality is it was a lot more random than that. And, you know, I sometimes call myself the accidental guru because it wasn't like I really set out, you know, plan to do this, right? And then you tell everybody, make sure you have a plan, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, don't follow my footsteps here, right? It was interesting, right? Because I I came out of a background that was really negotiation, diplomacy, international negotiation work. I was teaching at the Kennedy School, and I got interested at some point in some org change stuff. And I had a person I knew who was a very eminent coach who did work with leaders in transition. And that just sort of sparked my initial interest around it. And so we decided to write a book together. And that book was not the first 90 days. It was one called Right from the Start that came circa 1999. And then I moved over to the business school and I really wanted to continue this work. I had started to do some leadership development programs with Johnson & Johnson. They were catching fire with the work. It was very exciting stuff. And so I went to my colleagues, my department chair, and said, I I want to write this book, right? And he said, you can't write that book. And this was well-meaning, I have to say. He was thinking in terms of my career and progression and stuff. And I'm saying, well, why can't I write that book? He says, well, basically, you're not in the leadership field. You're not, you don't have the imprimatur of leadership scholar. This is kind of, you know, very risky from a career point of view. But I'd more or less concluded by that point that I probably wasn't going to get tenure at Harvard anyway. It's a fairly weird thing that happens. And I, I wasn't kind of playing the game the way that I, I, I would need to, to, to get there. And so I said, just, okay, I'm just going to go for it, right? The reaction of the faculty was quite interesting. I had one senior professor in a closed meeting describe my writing of the book as an aberrant act, which was not encouraging, right, when I heard about this. But I think it's, you know, sometimes you just need to strike out in the direction you believe you need to go. And I certainly have no regrets about doing it. 
I've had a wonderful career. To your point, I caught a wave, which is wonderful when it happens. At that point, there was very little out there about helping leaders take new roles. There was lots about leadership, right? There was lots about org change. But that combination, that very challenging, pragmatic combination of taking a new role and beginning to change an organization hadn't really been focused on. And so I just sort of hit that right on the on the head and motivated in part or, or informed in part by all the work I'd been doing at J&J, where I'd really been working with a lot of great leaders very intently and developing the ideas. And so the ideas were battle tested to a degree and it just took off like a rocket ship. Right? And so I had this really odd experience of 2004, first edition of the book came out late 2003 of simultaneously being told I'm not going to get tenure and watching my book just kind of go like, you know, and so I was kind of walking around going, yeah, you know, well, this is the way it is, right? And I certainly don't regret it in any way, shape, or form. It's, it's very much shaped my trajectory since. Well, I mean, look, apart from certain roles, like people who maybe go work on the factory floor in some assembly facility and kind of stay there for 50 years, I mean, pretty much everyone is going to change their role, change their responsibilities over the course of a career. You know, you typically go in at some kind of entry level and gradually get more and more senior leadership responsibilities and, and so forth. Furthermore, there's another development, which is that people are always constantly changing companies. Now, maybe that was less true in the past where there was more of an internal labor market where people would escalate within, say, J&J or within General Electric and so forth. And now the average life expectancy of an employee at a company is here in Silicon Valley, at least, you know, a couple of years at most. And so people are constantly changing roles. They're also changing companies. And yet, this is not something which academics spend a lot of time on. I mean, we do talk about, okay, what do you need to do to be an important leader, right? What makes for good leadership? And we might have different theories about that, but we don't, we don't really focus on, okay, what's the interface look like? And, and it's kind of like teaching people, you know, a relay team on the track and spending all your time teaching the running part and never spending any time on the kind of handoff part. And now it seems like we're almost, we're in transition all the time, right? There's no equilibrium. It's like the minute you enter a new job, you're kind of preparing for your, for your next job. And these cycles are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. So I guess the question is, why is the allocation of academic research efforts, why is it kind of lagging the allocation of kind of time that people actually spend on these activities? No, it's a great question, Greg. And I, I guess, you know, just back to the first part of what you're saying, you know, I say that these days people have a career of transitions, right? You've got to expect that you're going to go through transitions. So you better be good at it. And I'm just in the process of starting to write the third edition of the book. And I, I joke with my editor that I think I'm going to retitle it the first 90 hours, right? Rather than <laughs> right. the first 90 days. You mentioned that there's a high degree of correlation between your success in the first 90 days and the rest of the time in the job. There's studies for professors that it's actually the first, I think, nine seconds. <laughs> You've got like nine seconds to impress and wow the students. And after that, it's it's too late, right? Yeah. How do you like me so far, right? Um, the answer better be you, you do. Yeah. And again, I think that that point you just made, and I'll come back to the question of academic effort in a minute, which is what continues to fascinate me is how much what you do early on in almost any activity sets the tone for everything that comes later. And to your point, if you're successful, you and I both stand up in front of large groups of accomplished people and with the objective and perhaps the pretension that we can teach them important things. And if you don't establish a presence with an audience quickly, given attention spans, especially these days, they're gone. 
As to the allocation of academic effort, I think there's been more, right? So, I mean, I, there's now a somewhat active field in onboarding. But I think the core of the answer is that it's just kind of hard to study. It's a very squishy thing to talk about how to successfully transition someone into a new role. It's very complex. There's a lot of elements to it. So it doesn't lend itself to a specialist kind of approach. And I know you're very interested in integrative and interdisciplinary work. By definition, transitions are in that realm you like to talk about, right? Which is they're inherently integrative and interdisciplinary. And so I think that puts people off to a degree, especially younger people, right? Because you want something you can study where you can collect some data and run some regressions and present some results. And it's just really hard to do that here. I think we've well established that doing the right things early in a job can have a tremendous impact, but it's not easy to measure that impact. I find when I work with clients, I basically say, try it. And once they've tried it, then it's, oh yeah, okay, I get it, right? This is highly valuable, but it's hard to put a precise number on, you know, you're going to get up to speed in X months faster, or you're going to be more productive in X days, because there's so many confounding factors. You pointed it out, the situation, are you moving up in a company, are you moving laterally in a company, you're moving to a new unit of the company, you're joining a new, a new company altogether, right? So, and maybe that's something we can talk about, about the vast array of different types of transitions that people go through. Yeah. So I think that's the best explanation I have of this. And what has happened is that people are spending more time focusing on the company side of onboarding rather than the leader side of how you do it, because that's frankly a lot easier to study. You can look at companies hiring people and you can do interventions and you can collect data on retention and engagement and impact and and you get more of a sense there of what the impact of that is. But for people being promoted in a role, very hard to do. Yeah, I mean, I would think that the movement would go in, in the opposite direction, that there'd be less effort than there was in the past, simply because employees don't stick around for as long, right? So, you know, I've talked to HR people that use this idea of the employee lifetime value. The customer lifetime value has now moved on to the employee lifetime value. And so a big part of that is, how do you get to this break-even point as quickly as, as possible, which is something you mentioned in, in the book, right? You know, you have to invest all this money in attracting talent and recruiting and so forth. And so if it takes a year for somebody to start adding value, that's usually when they're, you know, already looking for the next next job, right? So I, that's why I think, you know, companies have have certainly invested a lot more in giving people the tools that they need to succeed, at least at the entry level, when people are joining a new company, but it seems like they, there's less invested in the internal transitions that they might make. A lot of people I, I, I talk to in HR, they seem to think that the internal labor market is something that is kind of underappreciated and that, you know, when they're looking for an, a new employee or new position, they'll frequently kind of look outside rather than looking inside. Do you see a kind of a misallocation of effort on internal versus external recruiting? So I guess a couple of things are coming to mind, Greg, and it's fascinating, I think, really, right? One is, to your point, that companies now have a big incentive to get people up to speed quickly, right? No question, which is wonderful for me and the work I do. It's terrific. They have a pretty big incentive to revive those people with the tools they need to do that job. They have virtually no incentive in developing those people for future roles because the odds are very good. You've been eloquent about it, that they're not going to stay in that company. And so why rationally would you do that? I mean, is that endogenous? Are the people leaving those companies precisely because the only way to kind of advance your career is to, I mean, I, I've seen situations where people, the only way to get ahead in their own organization is to go somewhere else and then kind of re get recruited back at, at a higher level, which seems like a very circuitous way towards promotion. 
I think it varies a lot between companies. There are companies, I think, that pay much more attention to it, but even they are not investing as much as they did 10 years ago in developing people because of the mobility issues, right? You're younger than I am for sure, but you know, I can remember the day when companies would send leaders to an MBA program. They could make a one or two year investment in that person because they saw them as a high potential, but they also felt like they had a kind of social contract with that person that they would hang in there and stay. And we don't ever see that happen anymore, right? It's exceedingly rare for companies to make that sort of investment in a leader today. To your other key point, though, I do think that it's easy to undervalue your internal talent. And it's almost, I think, a version of familiarity breeds contempt or underappreciation, right? The shiny object on the outside can look a lot more attractive, even if you're paying more for it, and even if you have to bring that person up to speed. And I'm not saying, of course, there isn't real cases sometimes for bringing in talent externally. But I don't think there's sufficient appreciation often of the internal talent. And so that feeds that cycle you're describing, right? People say, okay, I'm not going to be appreciated. I better go someplace else. Maybe I come back. Maybe I don't, right? In a circumstance like that. So the better companies I see do this work pay more attention to that, right? They're actually looking at the internal talent. When they evaluate someone for a key role, they may well have some external candidates, but they're doing a pretty rigorous assessment, both internally and externally, and maybe deciding that that internal candidate is, is the right one. Now, I want to get back to this idea of how important it is to be successful out of the gate. And this is clearly a psychological phenomenon, right? Because an economist would say, well, people should be Bayesian updaters, right? You know, if someone comes in, maybe you have a prior and, okay, the first 20 days didn't go so well, so you maybe reduce your posterior, but then, oh, they do right. And then, you know, you revise your, but, but I think what you're saying is that there's this sort of this positive feedback loop where if you are successful out of the gate, then you'll get more support from people. People will be more willing to contribute to your success. And if, if you're kind of a failure out of the gate, then people will pile on and they'll have lower expectations and so forth. So that's a classic feature of, of leadership, right? How the, the stronger can sometimes get stronger and the weaker get weaker. Do you have a theory about that? Why does that happen? Yeah, you're taking us very deeply into sort of human reasoning and judgment. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I, it's funny to hear you, wonderful actually to hear you mention Beijing updates, because I came originally out of a decision theory, game theory background. And so that's a beautiful idea, right? That you you take the information as it comes in, and you have a, an existing hypothesis about how things are going, and you update that, and so on and so forth. And it's a very rational and very reasonable way to think about things, but nothing like the way the human mind seems to work, right? And I think in part, it's because I suspect that it's evolutionary in its origins. I suspect we lived back in the, the mythical savanna in a place where we had to make very rapid judgments about things. Probably we weren't encountering new people all that often necessarily. So those judgments were about things like, is that a lion or a antelope? And I think the result has been a, a system of reasoning in the human mind that reaches conclusions fairly quickly on fairly little evidence. And once you have, and there's good, I'm sure you know, psychological research that supports this on the confirmation bias. Once we've reached a conclusion, Greg is great, right? We'll see you through this rose-colored lens to a degree. As opposed to, ooh, Greg, a uh, little gray cloud around Greg. And that just seems to be the way it works, right? And so you either fight that and say, gee whiz, the world should be fairer, should be more Bayesian. Or you say, okay, I better do a good job early on of creating the right impressions, building the right relationships, learning the right things, creating the right foundations of credibility to propel me forward. And that's kind of where 
I landed, if you will, with this whole approach in the end. It's a nonlinear phenomenon for sure. I mean, I've sometimes had the, the misfortune, I think of it as having been asked to coach somebody that's got themselves into a fairly deep hole. And I hate it because it, first of all, it goes against everything I believe in, right? Which is you want to get yourself off to a good start. You don't want to do this. But sometimes you've got a client who has an executive that they'd really like to try and save in some way. And they say, you know, Michael, come and help, right? And lots of times there's just what you find is there's really nothing you can do, right? Because they've dug themselves into a hole. They need a fresh start. Conventional wisdom is, has hardened around them that they're not effective or disruptive or whatever it is, or they don't belong here, the cultural kind of rejection syndrome, and they just don't get an opportunity to make a restart. Right. An economist might say, well, all right, fine. We understand why that might be the case for the people lower down in the organization, the people that report to you, the people that need to be influenced. But the performance evaluation, the management, they ought to be more rational and, and more Bayesian. The problem is that if they're being evaluated in terms of their ability to motivate their team, then it's perfectly objective to take the opinions of the people below as binding, right? If they're an individual, if they're out there, like if you have a portfolio of stocks and you're out there trading in the wild, then it's very easy to have, you know, a patient approach to that person. But if they're leading people, then you, you can't be patient. You kind of have the, the jury's, the verdict is in relatively quickly. And that's why people who may be very competent will have to resign because they're ineffective in their jobs. You know, you see this with, with a politician. They're perceived as ineffective in their jobs. And perception is reality, right? Yeah, exactly. So you can have a politician that everyone thinks that this politician did some egregious thing. And it doesn't matter whether they did or they didn't. What matters is whether people believe that that person did or didn't. And then they have to resign because they can't get anything done. Exactly. I think at the start of what you're just saying, I thought I heard you say that you were expecting rationality to increase as you went to the top of organizations, right? And I'm yeah. like... That's uh, not been my experience exactly, right? And I can say why, a little bit about why that is, right? Because I think that as you get to the top of organizations, the issues you're dealing with don't have right and wrong answers. They're highly complex. They really depend to no, you know, small measure on people's opinions and judgments and the alliances that they build and so on, right? And so it is very much a political and relationship game at the top of organizations. And anytime you're in that territory, those impressions matter, right? Do I think Greg is credible or not? Do I trust Greg or not? Is Greg good to me or not? So I very much see the same dynamics, maybe even more so operating as you get to the high levels of organizations where there's these complex, ambiguous, uncertain problems that people are grappling with. And oh, by the way, you've also got very smart, very ambitious people competing for power and influence, right? And so that's the, the milieu that you're, you're really operating in, in the end. I think the other thing that's interesting too about what you're saying is that you'd think that those very senior high impact leaders at the top would get more attention on their transitions, mm -hmm. folks down below, but the reality is it's the opposite, right? Organizations consistently put more effort, for example, on onboarding into entry-level people than they do often on senior executives. Because the assumption is that you're a leader. You know how to lead, right? You shouldn't need to be supported in a transition. It's especially true for internals. Externals coming in get more support at higher levels than internals do making the same kinds of moves, even though they're just as difficult. So there's something kind of just wrong about the way that organizations tend to think about this. I think it's rooted a little bit in a kind of a sink or swim 
I call it approach to, to leaders, right? We're going to test our leaders. And if they swim, terrific. If they sink, we're better off without them kind of thing, right? I sometimes describe it as leadership development through Darwinian evolution. You know, it's not a <laughs> right. It's not a very well thought through process in, in my opinion. Not Lysenkoian. Yeah. Well, so this takes us to one of I thought one of your best articles, which was about managers becoming leaders. And in terms of value per word, it's pretty pretty good stuff. And you had a accompanying slide deck that you can get up on uh, HBR because it kind of gets to this Peter principle, which we all know, which is that what got you there isn't what's going to keep you there. And we at Haas, I think it was before my time, we had to change our kind of branding because we, we used to talk about being a school of management and we wanted to become a school of leadership. And there's a difference, right? There's a difference between being a manager, thinking of yourself as a manager and thinking of yourself as a, as a leader. Now, there are some companies that I've talked to now that allow for you to kind of develop as an individual contributor and become more and more well compensated and so forth without having to ever really get into this position of leadership. You see that in a lot of tech companies where, where people can go off and, and do their thing and code or whatever. But for most people, this is something which they have to do. And we like to think of business school as come in as a manager and leave as, as a leader. Certainly, if you think about Harvard, where it happens that you know, people are 24 years old when they're going to Harvard Business School, that, that's certainly not going to happen there. But there's a lot of different pieces to this transition that you go through. I found it fascinating because this is not a transition that happens once in your life, right? This is something that happens multiple times, and, and it's really more of a, a spectrum. And each step means one further step in the direction of each of these things that you describe, like going from becoming a specialist to becoming a generalist and, and so forth. And so becoming learning how to become a better leader is learning how to undergo each of these seven transitions that you mentioned. So I point to a couple of books, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, that very much inform exactly what you're saying absolutely correctly. And one is Marshall Goldsmith's What Got You Here Won't Get You There. That pithy little phrase, right? And that's just so accurate because as you move up through an organization, it is indeed absolutely true, right? That the skills that got you to a certain level are not necessarily the ones that are going to get you further. And that's the kind of the, the root of the Peter principle you mentioned earlier, right? You get promoted to your level of incompetence because you don't adapt. You continue doing what you've done in the past. And at some point, that's not just not good enough anymore. The other one I, I would point to it was co-authored by Ram Charan, The Leadership Pipeline, which really gets into how things change as you move up through organizations, and I think is a, a terrific resource even today. It's been around for quite a while. And for me, you know, I, I got quite interested in a specific part of that leadership pipeline, which is what happens when you go from being a functional leader to being a general manager. And this was based on some research I did with a big set of executives about what were the toughest transitions you went through in your career. And it was very interesting, right? The number one one, interestingly, was becoming a manager for the first time, right? There was just so much learning that happened when you had to lead people and, and lead through people rather than yourself, right? For those senior people, though, the second was that move to general management, right? Or that move to business unit leadership, if we want to use the leadership terminology. And that's the origins of the seven shifts work. I, I did a really in-depth look saying, okay, you know, Greg, you're the, the VP of finance or you're the CFO. I've worked with several CFOs who have been promoted to being a CEO. That's a huge jump, 
And I think that's where those big shifts came from the research that I did. I, I started to try and identify, well, what change in orientation and skill set do you need when you get to that senior level? I think of it as the enterprise leadership level today. You have to become a generalist. That's hard because you grew up in a function, right? You had a function of origin. You're deeply rooted in finance, you know, and now you've got to know a lot about marketing and sales and operations and R&D and a host of other things, right? Integrating, leading those cross-functional teams becomes very important. Strategist, right? It's not good enough to be a good tactician. You've got to develop, hopefully you've got some endowment from a strategic thinking point of view, but you've got to develop it to a significant degree. It's not enough to be a good problem solver. You have to be able to set the agenda and communicate the agenda for the organization. Transforming organizations, you have to be conversant in how to understand and do that in the end. You know, I, one of the sixth shift is warrior to diplomat, right? At the top of organizations, you need to be a corporate diplomat. You need to engage in the external environment. You need to be building alliances. And then there's the leadership presence piece of how do you stand at the top of that organization with the presence necessary, right? To recognize that you're the role model for the entire organization, that everyone at some level is looking to you for cues about what to do and how to do it. That particular article, which, which by the way, thank you for that comment. I, it's really, I think, had a great reception, continues to generate interest because I think it does sort of crystallize that there are these very large changes that happen. And you better arm yourself to embrace that, right? Because you're not going to be successful if you don't. Well, I know there are a lot of people that say about our contemporary society that we've managed to extend childhood into our 30s. But I actually think the opposite is true in, in the corporate world, right? Where those transitions you're talking about, they have to happen sooner and sooner, right? Not just because so many people are working in startups or startup-like environments, but even in the incumbent large-scale organizations, everyone's moving to a more flatter hierarchy. Everybody's moving to a position where, you know, the people further down in the corporate hierarchy are expected to behave in, in ways that you know used to only be expected of, of senior leadership, right? So this idea of you know being a generalist and being an integrator and being a strategist, it's like, well, if you're a product manager, well, you darn well better be thinking in the latter of all those different buckets, right? Are we expecting people to mature as, as leaders more quickly than we did in, in the past? I absolutely think so, Greg. I think it's a great observation. And I really agree with you that we're by the nature of the speed of what's going on, the generational shift that's going on, the complexity of the issues people are facing, we're needing people to get up to that level of capabilities much sooner than they did before. And that presents some real risks, I should say, right? Because people just don't have the, the decades to season themselves as leaders to do what they need to do today. A colleague and I just actually published an article in the Harvard Business Review online about how new CEOs should think about balancing strategy and execution through their first year. Why did we write that article? We wrote that article because we were seeing quite a few first-time young CEOs who had come out of strategy functions or out of consulting companies or out of particular you know, marketing roles and really knew virtually nothing about execution, right? And they didn't understand that the price of admission for a board when they take on a new CEO is confidence that execution is being dealt with effectively, right? That the core business is being defended, you know, effectively and, and that tendency to focus too much on the strategy too early, perhaps, right? And I think that that connects to what you're saying, because these are very able people. They just haven't had the opportunity to play the roles 
that come up through particular channels and they're running very big companies, you know, and they're yes, absolutely smart as can be, but there's a kind of experience that just isn't necessarily there. And if they don't recognize that, they can really set themselves up for, for real difficulty. Well, that reminds me of one of the articles you wrote, which said that strategy is not simply about mission statements, right? It's not simply about understanding the mission, right? It's really, it's like an integrative function, or it's actually, it's one part. There's mission, there's strategies, a whole bunch of things that need to be aligned in order for you to be effective. You know, it's been a long time since Michael Porter wrote that article, What is Strategy? When you think of strategy, how do you think about it? Do you think of it as as sort of the integration function, or do you think of it as just part of what it is that, that a leader needs to focus on? It's funny to hear you mention Michael Porter's article, because I still use that article today. It's a chestnut, for sure. And I think part of what he did in that article, to me, goes to the core of strategy, Greg, which is that strategy is about choice. He basically says, if you don't know what you're not going to do, you don't have a strategy. And so to me, the best work on strategy that's come since is really understanding how to frame and make the right choices and make the right trade-offs for the organization. And then, of course, there's a key piece about making sure you align people around that set of imperatives and build the capabilities necessary to support it. I do think that strategy remains one of the two or three key pillars of integration in an organization. I'd also point to the finance function as being absolutely central as a pillar of integration in the organization, but also talent today. If you're not focusing on talent, you are really missing a core part of what's necessary to sustain the organization. So when I look at the best CEOs and what do they focus on, right? They're focusing on strategy, 100%. Now, I should say, by the way, they have organizations that are good at execution. So that's kind of a given them. But that strategy, vision, future direction, the narrative of the company, the sense of purpose is a core thing that they're paying attention to, for sure. Of course, the finances are critical. But then talent and culture, right, are the kind of the third to me big pillar. I'm very interested in culture these days. I actually just had a piece come out a week ago in Slow Management Review about, about culture and transformation, right? And the basic point I was making with my co-authors was if you're not prepared to change your culture, you're not going to succeed in all the other kinds of transformations that you want to be pursuing, whether it's digital transformation or new business models or new ways of working. So I think if you can, as a CEO, focus on those three big buckets, direction, inspiration, right, the hardcore finance work and talent and culture, you've kind of put your arms around the core of what you need to do to run an integrated enterprise at a substantial scale. Does that make sense, Greg? Is that consistent with your experience? Oh, yeah, it does. One of the things I wanted to ask you is when I teach strategy, typically towards the end of my strategy class, when I'm talking about corporate strategy, competitive strategy, and so forth, I start transitioning to career strategy. And there's a lot of insights from corporate strategy that kind of makes sense, especially when we now start thinking of ourselves as CEOs of our own enterprise, right? And you know, you mentioned choices, right? So in your career, you have to make choices. You have to decide what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. And in your role, and, and you highlight in the book, First 90 Days, about how important it is to make it very clear what it is that you, you're going to do and not do. And, and this, this is part of the negotiation that you have with your, your boss, with your team, with your, with your stakeholders, and so forth. And this, I guess, presumably comes from your background in negotiations. How important is it to have some clarity around expectations, not only 
the expectations that you set for other people, but the expectations that you set for yourself. I was very struck by the connection you just made between sort of corporate strategy and those frameworks and what you do on a career basis, because I think it's a very fertile field and connection and a great way to think about it. I guess, and you're making me think a little bit about how I think about strategy too, right? So certainly choice and framing up the right choices is a big piece of it. But there's also a piece about options, right? How do you develop options for yourself? So when you're putting together a, a company strategy, you're dealing with uncertainty, you're dealing with ambiguity, you're not going to create the perfect plan. And so you're thinking through things in an options sort of sense too, right? What bets are we going to place? What options are we going to pursue? How will we know when to pursue them? And so on. And I think you can apply similar ideas to your careers. I think building bridges from where you are to where you want to go, right? So if you think about all the, the pieces of strategy that are about adjacencies and extensions and how you kind of bridge yourself from the current reality to the future, it's very similar, I find, with career advice, right? Sure, you want to turn yourself into a unicorn, but let's talk about how, you know, let's talk about the intermediate phases of evolution towards being a unicorn, right? Because the odds are not good that you're going to go straight to unicorn, right? So to me, I, I'm just thinking about it, Greg, as you're, you're talking, and I think that as you think about strategy choice and the right kinds of choices, of course, but also options and bridges, strike me as ways that you can sort of connect the, the strategy frameworks to the career development piece in potentially interesting ways. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned in, in the book is you know, watch out for your strengths. And I think this applies at the corporate level and also at the in individual level that we all know to watch out for our weaknesses. And we all know that those can potentially do us in. And so it's important to be aware of them. But I think counterintuitively, you say that we need to also be aware of the falls that can flow from our strengths and our failure to really understand those strengths and the domain in which they are most likely to be effective. Absolutely. And also recognizing, and it's back to that conversation we had a little bit about what got you here won't get you there, yeah. right? When is it that the strengths that have got you to that point are not necessarily what's going to propel you forward? Really critical to sort of recognize that. But also what you're making me think about too is there's been a long debate, as I know you know, about in terms of developing leaders, should you leverage your strengths? Understand and leverage your strengths is one kind of school of thought. And the other school of thought is focus on your, your development needs and weaknesses and work hard on. There are entire companies that have been built around discover your strengths, right? And there are entire companies that have been built around understand your developmental needs. To me, that's kind of a, a false economy and debate, right? Because the issue is typically yes. <laughs> you need to understand your strengths and which of them really are strengths in the context of the role you're going into. But you also need to be focusing on what's that developmental work that I need to do to become great in that role. I mostly coach CEOs these days and folks that I talk to about when they ask me about the work I do with CEOs, they're sometimes surprised when I say very early on in the relationship, I'm already talking to them about their leadership development agenda. Not just by being successful in the transition, of course, I'm doing that, right? But I'm also saying to them, look, especially for the first time CEOs, what is it that's going to take it? What's it going to take for you to become great at being a CEO? And let's start to identify that and work on it, right? Is it, is it managing the board? That's a typical one. Is it navigating the complexities of the external environment? So I think every leader should have a leadership development agenda, regardless of where they are. And that's rooted in an understanding of yourself, strengths and weaknesses, but also those things in relationship to the role you're going into. Well, I'm wondering, we talk about 
certainly inspired by Amazon, this idea of a day one company, right? And how the minute you become a day two company, that's when you have to prepare for your bankruptcy and, and demise, right? Does it make sense to take the same approach to your role? I mean, if you're a CEO for 10 years, isn't it easy to kind of get, get stale? Can you take this concept of the first 90 days and just keep rolling it over and say, okay, well, now the first 90 days is over. Now I got the next first 90 days, and then I've got the next first 90 days. And each of the next 90 days is like the first 90 days. Or to what extent does it make sense to mature into a role and develop some consistency and some constancy and some dependability and, and reliability, right? Is there a time when we can rest and relax and harvest the, the fruits that we've sowed? You know the answer to that question, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. Not today and not in any company I'm aware of, right? So I think it's a really interesting point, Greg. And I think I do see people use the first 90 days as kind of a rolling planning framework, right? It's the next 90 days and how do you think about it? For those people, it works really well. But for the, for the issue you're pointing to of kind of how do you stay fresh as a CEO over a substantial period of time, you know, maybe it's a decade. You know, I think the typical lifespan is six years now for a CEO of a public company. It's very easy to fall into the trap of complacency. It's very easy to, to surround yourself with people that are telling you what you want to hear. It's very easy to get a little bit isolated from what's going on. And you can kind of hear the hoofbeats <laughs> shortly thereafter of the approaching marauders, right? So you have to, as I think a CEO, be very disciplined about keeping yourself fresh. And part of that is your team. And you may need to change people on your team for no other reason than you need new perspectives, right, about what's going on. But I also find, again, this is longer term work I do with CEOs. Rather than 90 days, I typically focus them on, on eras, I call them, of two to three years, and really sit down with them. And what's this era going to be about, right? What's this era for the company going to be about? But what's this era for you going to be about? And the exercise of going through that work, including taking real stock of where you are, getting some real input on what's going on, understanding what's changing, and not just changing from the point of view of what the consequences are for the company, but understanding what the consequences are for you. And in some cases, recognizing that your day is done, right? That it's time to hand the reins over to somebody else which I find, and maybe we can talk a little bit about it, that final transition of your professional career, right? From being a CEO and most CEOs I know who transition out, they end up doing board work and do, you know, other stuff. So they don't, it's rare that they completely just put their feet up and go off somewhere. But there is an important piece of being mature as a leader, recognizing when the time has come to hang up the gloves. Some people, sometimes you see to do that just in the most elegant and thoughtful way and but far more often you see people stay too long and have to be kind of yanked off the stage which i always think is a very unfortunate end to a career you know not only do you see that but then they also kind of sabotage anybody who could potentially take their spot right so they're guaranteeing you know après moi le deluge right you're gonna wish Absolutely. i was back here in my you're gonna wish my corpse was back in, in the chair because I've left you no one to take over. So another question I had for you is you mentioned sort of having a board of advisors. I've heard this come up a lot. People talk about kind of a personal board of directors, people who will speak to you honestly and because you can't always count on your direct reports to be straightforward with you. What's the psychological barrier to that, right? Why, why don't more people do this when you advise CEOs? Do you help them construct something like this or... Do they just sort of rely on 
hired people, like people that they pay, consultants and coaches and so forth. Is there an advantage to having a paid coach advisor versus sort of a group of people that you can count on? Well, and also, also the question of are those inside the organization or outside the organization or a mix too, right? Which is a key key issue. I'm not a huge fan, I should say, of the personal board of directors. I mean, I, I know it sounds great and we're all CEOs in our hearts and so on and so forth, right? But any senior executive needs the right network of advisors and counselors. I do distinguish between those two things, right? Advisors are more on the technical side. I need someone who's an expert on digital transformation. Terrific, right? Counselor to me is more a political, you know, counsel literally means I'm going to help you make the right decisions. I'm going to help you navigate through the political currents of the organization. And that's more the work I personally do. And I never set myself up as a technical advisor or an expert on anything, right? What I end up mostly doing, and it's funny, it's connected again to the negotiation and diplomacy background is end up supporting leaders in navigating the politics, making the right choices. And often there's very few people they can talk to at the level of depth and with the level of candor that they can have in a conversation with me. And that's just the way it is, because as a very senior leader, there's certain things you can't talk to your team about. If you're fortunate with a partner that can help serve that role, that's terrific. But that's not always the case. And those folks may be very wise, but they're not necessarily experienced in the kind of work that you do. So for me, it's, it's more about let's take the role you're playing and your aspirations and let's ask what's the right constellation of advisory and council type support that you need to be effective in the end. And also recognize that that right constellation may shift as you move roles. The network of advisors and counselors you had as a CFO to continue the example is going to be really different than the network of advisors and counselors you're going to need at the CEO level. But I don't think there's any substitute for having that kind of support. I should say too, by the way, and it's, it's a great observation, Greg, because I think also when I work with CEOs, I also talk about the CEO support system that they need to build, right? The group of people internally around them that are going to be the kind of force multipliers for them, the chief of staff, right? The EA, the project manager, the, the key people that help them manage the external environment, their speech writer, Right. So especially for first time CEOs, you know, I'm really talking not just about you need that network of advisors and counselors, but also you need to construct a CEO support system. And it often involves people that are not your team. Right. It's a different group of people that need to be set up and honed to operate to magnify your impact. You know, one of the metaphors you use in your writing, which I really like, is this idea that when you switch companies, it's like an organ transplant and you're the organ. Right. It, so, you know, as we're more and more people, I mean, are changing companies with greater frequency and sometimes with corporate structures we have now moving from one division to another, one role to another is, is almost like moving to a different company in some cases. How do you make sure that that works well? Is it about unleashing massive amounts of immunosuppressing drugs to, you know, make that transition easier? How do you overcome the corporate immune system? And, and I know your answer is going to involve a lot of learning. There's definitely learning is a big piece. And I do want to talk about this idea of becoming a learning, incorporating learning, continuous time learning into your roles. So first of all, you're bang on. But the research on why executives onboarding fail definitively establishes that it has nothing to do with your competence, your knowledge of the industry, your ability to make decisions, your work ethic. It's all about culture and politics. 
and the interactions between those things. And so if you don't fit in the culture and you're not willing to adapt yourself to the culture, you're going to really have a very difficult time, even at pretty senior levels. And I'll, I'll give you an example, a global healthcare company, very consensus-driven, relationship-driven organization, quite a high ethical standard within the organization. And when people come in who are self-serving, people who come in who are too loud, <laughs> the antibodies to continue the metaphor very quickly begin to congeal around them and they're ultimately digested or expelled from the organism. So there is a biology almost to this process. Part of that, by the way, is you've hired the wrong people, right? Because you better be knowledgeable about your culture. And unless you're trying to change your culture, we can talk about that, you should be hiring people who can adapt. They don't have to be coming from the same kind of culture, right? But they have to be able to adapt to the culture and they have to, to your point, be able to learn about how we do things here. Yeah, if you think about what culture is, you know, it's basically values, what we care about, what we believe to be important. It's core beliefs about the way the world works and it's behavioral norms about how we do things, right? And so even having a nice little framework for thinking about it and some good questions to ask, I think really helps, right? That's what we try to provide to the leaders that we, we coach. But don't neglect either the political side, right? The building of those relationships, the creating of those alliances, making sure you're reaching out to your peers early on, even though you don't know what you need from them yet, preemptively building those, those key relationships as you come in as the other kind of key piece of it for people who are onboarding, I mean. Now, but what happens when the culture is the problem, right? So you're brought in to change the culture. And maybe this can take us to the kind of STARS framework because you know I know a lot of folks in the turnaround space and the culture is the first thing that they have to fix typically, right? And so they can't just rip out the entire old culture and plant a new one. It's not going to take. They have to presumably find elements of the old culture that are worth saving and then build on them, right? Just on that one, Greg, because I think it goes back to your comment earlier about bridges. When we do culture change work, that's exactly how we think about it. We think about how do you build a, a bridge from the current culture to the culture of the future. And that almost always involves retaining some elements and perhaps even leveraging some elements of the existing culture to propel things forward. Because you're right, you can't just do a complete cultural makeover. It just doesn't work that way. So Stars Framework, Startup, Turnaround, Accelerated Growth, Realignment, Sustaining Success, right? The basic idea is the kind of business situation you're going into has a substantial impact on how you should think about transitioning and how you should orient yourself as a leader to the, the issues, right? You said you did a lot of work with folks in turnaround environments, right? And turnarounds where the culture is a big part of it, right? Probably not, almost certainly not the only part of it, but a, but a big part of it. You're brought in as a new CEO to turn around an organization like that. The odds are pretty good that you're going to replace a good chunk of your team. Quite good, right? May not be the whole team, but it's going to be a substantial part of the team. You're going to hire people who think about desired culture the way you do and are prepared to drive it. You've got a burning platform, right? Where everyone understands things need to change. And so there's a powerful impetus to go forward and do that. So you can do things that you can never do in a, I call them realignment, right? a more subtle, proactive change challenge kind of scenario where if you come in and do that and people don't believe there's a need for change, you can hit the wall, yeah. right? You got to make sure they hit rock bottom before you take that job. They're not quite at rock bottom yet. I might not be able to do anything until they hit rock bottom sometimes. 
Well, it's not so much that you can't do anything. You just have to do it differently, right? You need to bring people on a different kind of journey. You probably are going to work mostly with the existing team. You need to educate them about the realities of what's going on here. You need to progressively move them forward. And so you just need to lead the process of culture change very differently in the end. I think that's the key, right? Which is, I find most leaders these days need to lead some form of culture change in their organizations because it's necessary to lay the foundation for the other kinds of transitions or transformations that are going on. But the STARS framework is a great way to think about how am I going to approach that, that change problem and recognize that what works well in the turnaround is going to be deadly potentially in, in a real life. I think in the first 90 days, you talk about how to avoid predictable surprises. And when I saw that little passage, I said, wait, I, I think I know what he's talking about, right? And so I want to take you back to some of your earlier work about predictable surprises that you did with, with Max Bazerman and how relevant that has been in the last year and a half or so. How can leaders overcome organizational inertia and how can they overcome their own individual kind of psychological inertia in ways that allow them to convert these unpredictable surprises into predictable surprises, which they can then manage proactively? And how have you seen this, if you want to comment on kind of how this has become relevant? First of all, let's recognize there really are surprising surprises, right? There are really bolts from the blue that happen. Black swans. Yeah, things that just people just, there's no real way anyone could have predicted it was going to happen. But the vast majority of time, the stuff we label as surprise, many people knew that it was going to happen, right? Or thought it was likely to happen, had insight, had written about it, had told people, you know, it's kind of the Cassandra phenomenon, right? And so, you know, I think COVID is a perfect example of this, but there's earlier examples. I think what happened in New Orleans with Katrina, everyone, you know, there were decades of studies that said if a hurricane hit New Orleans head on, it would be underwater, right? But nothing was done. And there's reasons for that, right? First of all, it's complex. It crosses, you know, many political and organizational lines. It involves making investments now that may never pay off or may pay off way down the road when we're short-term in our orientation. And I mean, again, I think what you're getting me to, Greg, is these interesting psychological phenomena that seem to be kind of part of how we're wired that sort of set us up for some pretty bad stuff sometimes. And I think the key for this for leaders is tap into the organization's understanding of things at a sufficient level and breadth that you get some insight into whether there are some landmines that are just sitting there waiting for you, right? Ready to kind of blow up. And so for me, that's the connection to transitions, right? Is the leader needs to get in there and see if there's any ticking time bombs that are kind of waiting for them. But as society, you know, we face just a huge problem with this kind of dynamic, right? I mean, so many people... We're talking for years about disease X showing up, what would happen when it did. I was doing stuff like that on the, in the early 90s, running pandemic responses, scenarios and stuff, right? For the community that knows about this and studies it and thinks about it, there was zero surprise associated with this. But we'd run down our supplies of personal protective equipment and ventilators. We had no integrated plans ready to really do anything. The previous administration completely pulled apart the part of the National Security Council that was doing this. And oh my God, we're shocked <laughs> when this happens. I don't have any easy answers to this. I mean, what Max and I were trying to do in that work was give people a sense of why these things happen, but also a bit of a diagnostic about how you look for them and recognize them before, at least at the organizational level, before they happen. 
I think it's also very difficult to evaluate people for the disasters that they've avoided, right? So I have a colleague who was made chief marketing officer of university school and discovered that the entire website and everything else was essentially so brittle because it was so, there was so much spaghetti in there and, and it was just like one tiny thing could happen, one attack and the whole thing would collapse and we basically would have no admissions website and it'd be shut down for. And so, you know, one of the first things that he did was invest in an enormous amount of, of effort into fixing that. Now, at the end of 90 days, it's like, all right, what'd you do? Well, hey, there's this disaster that didn't happen because of what I did. It's very hard to kind of communicate that as, as an accomplishment because after all, nothing happened, right? So, when it comes to communicating your efficacy, when you're dealing with stuff like that, how do you communicate that? I mean, is it something that you spell out at day zero to get back to this idea of expectation setting and clarity of communications and negotiations? I sometimes relate this to kind of people's CVs, right? So if you think about that STARS framework, like, you know, startup turnaround, accelerated growth, realignment, sustaining success, how many CVs do you find that say something like Greg sustained success brilliantly in his previous role, right? Or the way that Greg realigned this business and avoided problems took our breath away. It doesn't happen, right? Because people focus on the turnarounds, they focus on the startups, they focus on the accelerated growth because you've got a baseline and a result, right? It's not the disaster avoided. And we don't know how to really reward people for that preventative work, which of course creates its own self-fulfilling prophecy at some level in the end. I used to joke how many people have called their power utility and said, thank you so much for keeping the lights on today. Some quarterbacks do give their offensive linemen Rolex watches, right? Because they understand they have to be evaluated in different metrics. No, it's fair. It's fair. But you know what I mean. My best example of this, by the way, is, and it's a while back, but you'll probably remember it was the year 2000 problem, right? So there was this whole issue with Microsoft computers of when they hit the year 2000, the systems would break and everything with civilization as we know it would end, et cetera, et cetera, right? So literally hundreds of millions of dollars were spent avoiding that problem. And of course, you know, minute zero of January 1 of 2000, nothing happened. And people went, why did you get us so excited about this? Like, why did we spend all this money? Nothing happened for crying out loud, right? I think of that Russian guy who averted nuclear war, you know, by not reporting the false positive. And I think he's living in poverty somewhere in in Russia to this day. Last question, you know, learning comes up repeatedly in your work. And I think it's increasingly important that people become continuous learners. And this says something about kind of the educational model. I mean, we both teach, whether it's MBAs or executive education programs and so forth, the model of business school historically has been, okay, you know, you come in, you get this two years of stuff and we send you on your way. Knowledge implant. Yeah. Increasingly, we have to think of that as, well, maybe what we're giving is at best an operating system. And then if it's a good operating system, then there's all sorts of compatible apps out there that'll kind of, or, you know, there's updates available and so forth. How should we be thinking about, about learning? Should this learning and development be motivated? Should it be done internally? I mean, we all know General Electric had this wonderful leadership development institute and they spent hundreds of millions of dollars on it. But in today's world, it's highly unlikely that any company is going to put together anything like that internally. 
how should the process of learning and development take place? I mean, on the other hand, we, we think that the, the employees should pay for it themselves, but increasingly companies, when they're doing recruiting, they'll recruit saying, hey, you know, when you leave here in two years, you're like you'll have all this wonderful, these new skills and so forth, right? Because we're going to educate you. So is education something that companies should provide? Is it becoming a, a way of, you know, luring people and attracting people? So I think we're seeing more of education shift to the company side. We've been seeing that because it's more just in time. It's more being delivered in little nuggets. So we certainly, I think, seen a big move in that way. And it's been very challenging for business schools, I think, to adapt to this because you're absolutely right, Greg. There's kind of this come in and we'll kind of implant this knowledge in your head and you'll go away and have a successful career. And when you're successful, send money back for our endowment. The cycle is complete, right? Well, if you're Facebook, it's like, don't send money back to our endowment. Just send people to come work for us, You know, send business our way, develop independent tools for us. Absolutely, right? So point one, right? Point two is given the bewildering speed of change, the half-life of knowledge, as we know, has gone down dramatically, right? And so the answer is being really good, to your point, about acquiring new knowledge and also unlearning that which you've thought to be true in the past. And both sides of that are important, in my opinion, around this. I connect this, by the way, to the way I talk, I sort of counsel my kids about the future. The unlearning is as important as the learning. I don't know if you've got kids or not, but I personally struggle to tell them what to do in terms of preparing themselves for the future careers out there. And what I've come back to is basically a foundation of adaptability and rapid learning capability, but also a baseline set of values and principles that you use to orient yourself through the complexity and volatility of of what's going on. I speak to them about interdisciplinary work. You know, the future lies in the people who can operate at the the junctions of disciplines, right? Disciplines as we know them are going to be completely subsumed by automation, by AI, and so on, right? Creativity, it's something that machines still can't do. That creative ability is going to be key. So that's the sort of things I point my kids to. But it's not easy at all these days because of the amount of change that's going on. I would say for leaders, to me, there's sort of a related thing that we try to do, I try to do. I still believe there are certain fundamental challenges that leaders face, capabilities that leaders need that really haven't changed that much and won't change that much in the end, right? The ability to craft a vision for your organization, the ability to engage people effectively. And so I teach a program at IMD called Transition to Business Leadership that's about taking people from those mid-tier jobs into enterprise leadership jobs. And very little of it is about emerging developments in technology or agile methodologies. It's an incredibly popular and successful program, but a big piece of, you know, one big topic we deal with is leadership presence. How do you show up as a leader? How do you communicate effectively? How do you craft a vision for your organization? And so it's almost like there's a two-level set of things you need to do here, right? You need to build those enduring foundations on one hand, and you need to have the capability to respond and learn and unlearn very rapidly about the content and the technologies and the societal trends that are going on. And those things need to coexist in a single brain, which is not easy. But I'd actually be interested, what's your reaction to that? Your own question, I guess, because I think it's a really fundamental one. Yeah, I mean, I think there's certain things that that are timeless, right? The things you just mentioned, I think if you had someone back in Sparta or Athens, right, they would benefit from a course like that, right? Because there's just something about human beings that is 
cross-cultural and cross-historical time periods and when it comes to communicating and, and motivating and so forth. But I, I think also what's different is the, the fact that there's so much change in the particular, which I think is unprecedented in human history. And so this capacity for, for learning is increasingly important, right? And so that the skills and specific knowledge that would help you last year doesn't help you as much this year. So I, I agree with you that on the learning side, it's really about coaching versatility and coaching malleability and adaptability and flexibility, which again means more real option thinking, less NPV thinking. It means more experimentation, more at the kind of platform level and less at the application level in order to be successful as, as a leader. 100% agree with you, right? And I think that it's interesting to think about how does that coexist in one brain, right? That you've got this kind of foundation of timeless, reasonably timeless, immutable kinds of principles, approaches, capabilities, and that coexists with a brain that can very rapidly get up to speed with things, let go of things. You're making me think a lot about it, actually. I think it's quite an interesting problem. Oh, by the way, I've always erred on the side of the timeless. There have been leadership transitions as long as there have been people. The changing of the guard has always been fascinating from, I'm sure, the times we started to stand up to today, negotiation, which is where I started my career. I guarantee you, a thousand years from now, we're still going to be negotiating, or at least the AIs are going to be negotiating with each other. So I think it, my career is focused mostly on my interest in those timeless pieces, right? But I pride myself in staying up to speed pretty well with what's going on with the, the highly dynamic and changing part of the world too. But I just don't teach about it. Well, Michael, it's been great chatting. We look forward to the next edition of First 90 Days. Also, everyone should check out your next move, master your next move. And if you want to go back and enjoy some of the oldies, check out Predictable Surprises. Hope to see you again sometime soon, perhaps in, in IRL, as they say, <laughs> either in Switzerland or out here in California. Thanks again. Thanks very much, Greg. Great to spend some time with you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.